When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Hi, I'm Scott Chesworth, and welcome to the Ancient World. Episode 28, When the Meme Came. In the winter of 546 BC, the Spartans received a message from their ally, King Croesus of Lydia, calling on them to honor their agreement and join his fight against the Persians. Without delay, the Spartans donned their armor, sharpened their spears, and marched off to war against the neighboring city-state of Argos. Having forged their Arcadian alliance and made a separate treaty with the powerful Greek city of Corinth, the Spartans finally felt ready to challenge their longtime northern rival for dominance of the Peloponnese. The Argives proposed a proxy war, with each side selecting 300 champions. The Spartans agreed, the battle was joined, and as the sun set on the bloody field, only two Argives and a solitary Spartan remained alive. Believing they'd won by virtue of numbers, the Argives returned home claiming victory. The Spartan, however, claimed they'd surrendered the field, giving the victory to him. When neither side would back down from their claim, full-fledged war broke out. The result was a crushing victory for Sparta, who permanently annexed a large swath of Argive territory. In the aftermath, the Argives shaved their heads in shame. The Spartans, in contrast, pledged to grow their hair long, adding yet another aspect to their already distinctive appearance. The Spartans were still riding high on this victory when they received word of the fall of Croesus. Shamed by their broken vows, but reluctant to commit forces overseas, the Spartans decided to rely on the power of intimidation that had served them so well at home. A delegation of Spartans was dispatched to meet with Cyrus II at the former Lydian capital of Sardis. In the presence of the Persian king, the envoys shunned all diplomatic niceties to deliver their simple, straightforward message. Leave the Greek cities of Ionia alone or answer to the Spartans. Cyrus's reply was to summon a local Ionian attendant and ask him offhandedly, And who were the Spartans? The delegation was dismissed to return home humiliated. A generation would pass before they'd have the opportunity to avenge the insult. When they did, it would be with thousands of Persian bodies piled before a narrow pass called Thermopylae. Meanwhile, near Athens, another army was on the move. 
During his decade in exile, Pisistratus had traveled widely throughout the Greek world, kindling the alliances that would enable his return to power. Despite having abandoned his first Argive wife, he was somehow able to repair his relationship with the rulers of Argos and obtain a new wife, his third, from a prominent local family. From there, it was on to Thebes, where he won additional wealthy backers, then to the wild northern lands of Macedonia, where he gained an interest in the valuable Pangaean silver mines. He also spent time in Thessaly, home to the mythic Greek heroes Achilles and Jason, where his third son Thetelos was born. However far he ranged, his thoughts remained fixed on Athens, its towering Acropolis, fickle populace, and the treacherous Eupatridae families who had twice cost him his rule. Where his first two attempts to gain power had relied largely on trickery, the third would rest on the firmness of metal. Macedonian silver and the generous donations of his supporters were coupled with further wealth gained from the Laurian silver mines near Athens. Much of this wealth was converted into other metals, the hard steel and bronze of swords and armor, outfitting an army of mercenary soldiers levied from the lands of his new allies. In 546 BC, the general was ready. Landing his forces on the beaches of Marathon, Pisistratus marched them toward Athens. Learning of the invasion, the Alcmeonids led the Athenian army to confront him near the village of Pallene. The battle was a complete rout. Despite their skill and determination, the Athenian hoplites were simply no match for Theban cavalry and Argive infantry led by one of Greece's most experienced military commanders. Ominously, an Alcmenid noble was killed in the front line of battle. The rest of the clan, unwilling to face the former tyrant's wrath, fled the city once again into exile. Ascending the ramp to the Acropolis for a third time, Pisistratus once again claimed the title of Tyrant of Athens. His first decree to his new subjects was that they should not be alarmed or downcast, but should go and attend to their private business, leaving all the burdens of state for him to shoulder. For better or for worse, this time Pisistratus was here to stay. As might be expected, the tyrant's first acts were geared towards cementing his role at the pinnacle of the Athenian power structure. He recruited Scythians, fearsome steppe nomads, to act as his bodyguard and private security force. The Eupatridae clans were alternately threatened or placated, often through the doling out of choice positions in the political establishment. One prominent noble and potential rival Miltiades of the Philades was granted the tyrant's permission to take an army to the distant Hellespont, the dividing line between Europe and Asia, and secure the rich agricultural territory for Athens. Miltiades fulfilled his charge through the conquest of both locals and rival Greeks, and eventually established his own tyranny, subject only to Pisistratus's overarching authority. In other respects, the former general had no desire to unduly shake things up. He'd fought for Athens over hard years of war and truly loved his home city, almost as much as he loved ruling over it. 
Having finally secured power, Pisistratus wanted to do everything possible to make his citizen subjects both happy and prosperous. In particular, having previously taken up the cause of the downtrodden Hypericreoi, he had no intention of forsaking them or their valid interests now that his aim had finally been achieved. Traveling through the countryside, Pisistratus met with the locals, listened to their grievances, and dispensed even-handed justice wherever he could. Back in the city, he regularly attended meetings of the Athenian assembly, appearing respectfully in the role the Emperor Augustus would later coin as princeps or first citizen, but never openly flouting his power. He also turned his attention to that old tyrannical standby, lavish public works projects designed to promote the prosperity and prestige of both Athens and her people. To many, the tyranny of Pisistratus signaled the start of a new Athenian golden age. Aristotle later recorded that his administration was temperate and more like constitutional government than a tyranny. Herodotus claimed that Pisistratus, not having disturbed the existing magistrates nor changed the ancient laws, administered the state under that constitution of things which was already established, ordering it fairly and well. Certainly, any calls for overthrow or return to the chaos of Eupatridae rule were soon smothered beneath a stable and complicit silence. Meanwhile, in the aftermath of the Persian conquest of Lydia, the Ionian Greeks were forced to adapt quickly to the new state of affairs. The great philosopher Thales had advised his fellow Milesians not to fight alongside the Lydians on the plain of Thimbra, even though other Ionian cities had heeded Croesus's call. It's possible his experience fighting the Persians at Teria had convinced him that the Lydian cause was already lost. After the fall of Sardis, Thales advised the Ionian Greeks to form a defensive coalition against the evident Persian threat. The Greeks saw the wisdom of his plan and created an Ionian League of twelve cities, but spitefully excluded Miletus due to its earlier failure to fight at Thimbra. Thales would die within the year, his philosophical legacy far more secure than his political one. After ordering the death of Croesus, Cyrus spared the Lydians any further punishment, intending to rule his new empire with a light and respectful hand. He installed a Persian noble named Tabalus as the new Lydian governor, or satrap. But he also entrusted a local Lydian aristocrat named Pactius to oversee the civil administration and arrange for the transport of Lydia's wealth back to Persia. Then, leaving a military garrison in the capital, Cyrus led the bulk of his forces back to Ecbatana. He'd hardly left when Pactius used his access to the treasury to recruit Lydian and Ionian mercenaries and lead an uprising against their Persian occupiers. The revolt was successful, and Persian forces were surrounded and trapped within the Acropolis of Sardis. Enraged that his accommodation had been mistaken for weakness, Cyrus immediately dispatched his senior infantry commander, a Median general named Mazares, to put down the insurrection and bring Pactius back to Ecbatana alive. 
Mazaris was also tasked, more generally, with impressing on the Lydians the price to be paid for any future disobedience. As the Median army approached Sardis, Pactius fled the city. He knew that his only hope for safety lie in the coastal strongholds of Ionia. If the Greek plan had been to lay low for a while and kind of hope that the Persians forgot about them, that approach was shot in the foot the minute Pactius showed up at Priene, laden with Lydian gold and begging for the sanctuary of the newly formed Ionian League. On the other hand, if Cyrus had eventually intended to conquer Ionia anyway, the revolt of Pactius just moved up the timetable and gave him the perfect pretext to begin the assault. Leading Median forces to the coast, Mazaris captured Priene, seized Pactius, and dispatched him back to Ecbatana, where he was likely tortured to death. Next, the Median commander conquered the Ionian city of Magnesia. Lying only 15 miles from Miletus, it's unclear whether Magnesia's population was mainly Milesians, Ephesians, or Lydians, but like Miletus, it was not a member of the Ionian League. Its conquest sent a clear message. All Greek cities were now potential targets. Shortly after the capture of Magnesia, Mazaris died, possibly killed in battle. If the remaining Greek cities considered this a promising development, they obviously didn't know Cyrus. Having begun the process of Ionian conquest, the Persian king had no intention of leaving things unfinished. Instead, he doubled down and dispatched his most senior general to finish the job. The return of Harpagus to Anatolia would be the death knell for Ionian freedom and resistance to the Persians. For the next four years, Harpagus and his Medes ranged across the Anatolian countryside, conquering territory after territory and city after city with a ruthless and almost mechanical efficiency. Operating from their new regional capital of Sardis, his army first secured the neighboring territories of Lycia, Caria, and Cilicia. Though Harpagus showed mercy and tolerance toward all conquered peoples, in keeping with Cyrus's wishes, the fiercely independent Anatolians had no interest in meekly surrendering to any foreign ruler. Emblematic, if extreme, were the citizens of Xanthos and Lycia, who destroyed their Acropolis, killed their wives, children, and slaves, then launched into a suicidal attack upon the superior Persian troops, all to avoid the humiliation of conquest. Moving south into the Levant, Harpagus led his army against the ancient port cities of Phoenicia. After withstanding centuries of assaults by Assyrians and Babylonians, the Phoenicians found themselves virtually defenseless in the face of new and innovative Persian military tactics, including the use of earthwork ramps and mounds and the deployment of mountain climbers to scale city walls. Harpagus's rapid success in Phoenicia led to an unforeseen consequence, a second massive exodus of Phoenicians fleeing for the security of Carthage and other distant shores. Those who remained behind would soon find Phoenicia divided into the four new Persian vassal kingdoms of Sidon, Tyre, Arwad, and Byblos. They'd also be compelled to embrace a new and prosperous role as shipbuilders for the Persian Empire. 
Returning to Anatolia, Harpagus finally turned his eye toward the remaining coastal strongholds of the Ionian Greeks. Despite fierce resistance, city after city fell to his army. Following the Phoenician example, many Ionians chose to flee to the Greek mainland or the even more distant territories of Magna Graecia, rather than submit to Persian rule. Here, the city of Phocia took the extreme approach, evacuating its entire population along with all their belongings in order to leave nothing behind for the Persians. Even as Harpagus completed the Persian conquest of Anatolia, Cyrus was off campaigning in distant eastern territories beyond the Zagros. Taking the Khorasan Highway deep into the lands of his Aryan ancestors, Cyrus led Persian forces against the nomadic steppe tribes of Iran and Central Asia. Six years of near-constant campaigning earned the Persian king control over an immense swath of territory, running from the Aral Sea in the north to the Hindu Kush in the south. His campaign was later recorded as bringing into subjugation every nation, without exception. Much like Julius Caesar later accomplished with the Gauls, Cyrus was able to successfully expunge the primal Median fear of the Scythians, who had previously dominated their kingdom for decades. Subdued by the Persian king and awed by his military prowess, the Scythians would prove to be among the most brutal and effective of the empire's shock troops. When it comes right down to it, the Scythians were rapidly becoming the Swiss army knife of steppe tribes. The Assyrians had used them to threaten Urartu, the Babylonians had used them to conquer Assyria, Pisistratus was using them for bodyguards, and now the Persians were using them for therapy. Oh, did I mention that they also wore tall pointy hats and used cannabis? And that they liked to brag about drinking the blood of their enemies and using the scalps as napkins? They were a fairly crazy bunch, and they'll be giving the Persian king Darius I a serious headache just a few years down the line. But for the moment, the Persians were still riding high and feeling no pain. Wherever he went, and wherever he conquered, Cyrus portrayed himself as the living embodiment of ancient Aryan traditions, and gave local tribal chiefs wide latitude under his overarching rule. This approach won Cyrus his ultimate goal. A broad and stable buffer zone to the northeast secured the Jaxartes River by a series of seven Persian forts. With this distant frontier established, Cyrus was free to return his focus to unfinished business in the west. In 542 BC, Nabonidus finally left his desert refuge of Tama and made the reluctant, foot-dragging journey back to the capital. Any attempts to win over Arab allies had proven fruitless. In fact, Cyrus had wooed them away in his typical charismatic style and used Arab troops decisively during his final assault on Lydia. Over the past few years, merchant caravans and royal messengers had continued to bring rumors to Tama, tales of spectacular campaigns, staggering odds overcome, and conquered lands now stretching from the Aegean to the Aral Sea. No one, not even Sargon the Great or Tiglath-Pileser III, had ever come so far so fast. In the end, Nabonidus was left little choice but to re-shoulder his responsibilities and see to the defense of Babylon.
The situation in the capital, always dicey for the ethnically Assyrian, sin-worshipping, nonconformist king, had predictably grown worse during his decade of absence. The priesthood of Marduk, who had once resented him, now openly despised him for throwing their sacred calendar of festivals into disarray. The ordinary citizens of Babylon had serious abandonment issues, and had also been suffering under the incompetent administration of the king's son Belshazzar. In an effort to make amends, Nabonidus immediately relieved Belshazzar and several other senior administrators of their positions of authority. Regardless, every action taken by the Babylonian king smacked of much too little and very much too late. By 540 BC, Nabonidus's advisors began to bring him rumors of a full-court propaganda offensive being waged by the Persians. Cyrus's agents were abroad in Babylonia, highlighting Nabonidus's many failings, touting the admirable qualities of the Persian king, and instilling justifiable fear of the price of Babylonian resistance. To the priests of Marduk, the agents provided reassurance that their right of worship would be upheld. To the leaders of displaced peoples, heirs of the freed Judean king Jeconiah prominent among them, the agents promised that Cyrus would end their exile and permit their return home. To the common citizens, the agents promised mercy and the restoration of ancient Babylonian traditions so long abused and neglected by their current ruler. It was, all in all, a pretty convincing pitch, made all the more so by the fact that Cyrus was increasingly known for living up to his royal propaganda. With his people gradually abandoning him and the walls of his palace shrinking around him, Nabonidus played what he considered to be his last card. He commanded that the statues of all the Babylonian gods be taken from the cities of southern Mesopotamia and brought immediately to the capital. While unusual, this was not exactly the unprecedented mass hostage-taking of Babylonian gods denounced in later Persian propaganda. Longtime listeners to the podcast have often heard about conquering armies making off with important cult statues. Probably the most famous incident was when the Elamites carted the statue of Marduk off to Susa, from where it was later recovered by Nebuchadnezzar I. So, aside from invoking the protection of the gods, which, well, yeah, Nabonidus was also taking preventative action to make sure that the Persians wouldn't be able to seize cult statues from captured Babylonian cities. On the other hand, to remove a cult statue from a city, period, was to risk removing that god's protection from the city, which meant that Nabonidus was also leaving numerous Babylonian cities defenseless, godwise, through his action. The Babylonian king may have had good reasons for doing so, but a propaganda coup it was not. In the fall of 539 BC, with local waterways at their lowest ebb, Cyrus II marched an enormous army of Persians, Medes, and other newly won contingents from his far-flung empire, down from the Zagros Mountains, along the Diala River, and toward the eastern bank of the Tigris. Nabonidus dispatched his son Belshazzar at the head of a large Babylonian army to confront him. 
The two sides met at the city of Opus, at the junction of the Diala and the Tigris, and the extreme end of the fortified Median Wall, near the current site of Baghdad. Belshazzar's army was supported by local forces under the Babylonian governor Gabrias, who held the territory between the Tigris and the Zagros in Nabonidus's name. In a retro twist, Gabrias and the people he ruled over were ethnic Gutians, members of the same tribe of Zagros nomads who'd brought an end to the old Akkadian empire of Sargon the Great. Whether Cyrus had appealed to their common origins is unknown. But whatever strategy he used was successful. In mid-battle, Gabrias took his army over to the Persians, and the remaining Babylonian forces were completely routed. Belshazzar disappears from the historical record, and it's likely that he met his end at the Battle of Opus. As if this weren't enough, back in Babylon, Nabonidus was confronted with open rebellion by his own citizens. His back against the wall, the Babylonian king ordered his security forces to kill anyone who challenged his rule. The revolt was contained, but when news reached Nabonidus of the defeat of the Babylonian army and the death of his only son, the king could likely feel his last hopes fading. On October 5th, 539 BC, the city of Sippar, just to the north of Babylon along the Euphrates, opened its gates to the Persian king without resistance. Cyrus was aware that remaining Babylonian forces had formed a last line of defense just north of the capital. Unconventional as always, the Persian king decided to forego the needless bloodshed of a direct assault. He instead dispatched a small body of troops, under the newly minted Persian general Gabrias, south along the Tigris to take the capital by surprise. After meeting token resistance near the Enlil Gate, Gabrias was able to move quickly to secure the city. In fact, Babylon was so large that long after the outer portions were taken, those in the center continued to engage in a lively religious festival, until they were finally informed that their city had been captured. Still, the citizens of Babylon were pretty fatalistic about the whole affair. Cyrus's propaganda and Nabonidus's bloody crackdown had combined to cast the Persians in the effective role of liberators. But actually, even before all that, Babylon's priests, administrators, and general populace had long been ready for a change of leadership. When the opportunity came, they grabbed it and eagerly handed Nabonidus over to Gabrias's troops. Hearing of the capture of both their city and king, the Babylonian army found its position untenable and surrendered en masse to the Persians. It's probably worth mentioning that there are alternate versions of the capture of Babylon. Herodotus records a more dramatic tale of Nabonidus leading Babylonian forces against the Persian army, finally retreating behind the city walls, and having the ensuing siege broken by Cyrus, who diverts the flow of the Euphrates so that his troops can march into Babylon along the riverbed. Another version by the Babylonian historian Barassus has Nabonidus fleeing to Borsippa after the fall of Sippar, and returning to Babylon later, only to be captured. But the above version, taken from the Nabonidus Chronicle, is widely considered the most reliable. The final fate of Nabonidus is unknown, 
but it's likely that he was either imprisoned or killed on Cyrus's orders. It's equally likely that few Babylonians mourn the passing of their strange and distant king. With the possible exception of his mother, it's pretty obvious that no one, neither his own people nor later historians, ever really understood Nabonidus or the complicated motivations behind his actions. But a few comparisons are worth making. Like the great Neo-Assyrian king Ashurbanipal, Nabonidus had been preoccupied with Mesopotamia's distant past, even as his own empire was beginning to crumble around him. And like the Lydian king Croesus, Nabonidus' death was marked by irony. After all, it had been his request for Persian aid to free his home city of Haran from the grip of the Medes that had first set Cyrus on the path to Near Eastern conquest. Acting on Cyrus's strict orders, Gabrius made sure that Persian occupation forces committed no looting, violence, or any other offensive acts against the Babylonians. He also posted Gudian shield-bearers around the Temple of Marduk to ensure that sacred rites could carry on without disruption. Meanwhile, Cyrus II remained, respectfully, outside the city gates, negotiating with Babylonian priests and administrators on the proper way to assume control over the ancient capital. Supposedly, both the Neo-Assyrian king Sargon II and the later Macedonian conqueror Alexander the Great took much the same approach during their respective captures of Babylon. The process took weeks, but Cyrus was infinitely patient. The Persian king was clearly favored by the gods, but the persnickety Babylonians were wondering, you know, if you don't mind us asking, which gods exactly? Well, all of them, Cyrus replied, but of course Marduk was foremost among them. The gods had granted him dominion over all lands, and charged him with ruling over all peoples with righteousness and justice. Apparently satisfied, or not wanting to push their luck, the priests returned to their temples and went about reinterpreting their ancient texts to confirm that the Persian king was merely fulfilling a long-established destiny. On October 29, 539 BC, Cyrus was finally granted entry into Babylon and heralded with the full title earned through his many conquests. The Great King, King of Persia, King of Anshan, King of Media, King of Babylon, King of Sumer and Akkad, King of the Four Corners of the World. One of Cyrus's first acts was to return the cult statues assembled in Babylon to their home cities across Mesopotamia. Or, as he described it, as for the gods of Sumer and Akkad, which Nabonidus, to the wrath of the Lord of the Gods, brought to Babylon, at the command of Marduk, the great Lord, I caused them to dwell in peace in their sanctuaries, in pleasing dwellings. Another promise was fulfilled when Cyrus issued the Edict of Restoration, freeing the Hebrews from their Babylonian captivity. In 538 BC, Zerubbabel, or the seed of Babylon, grandson of the freed Judean king Jeconiah, led the first group of Hebrews on the long and joyful journey back to their homeland. 
later installed as governor under the Persian king Darius I, Zerubbabel would lay the foundation for both the Second Temple and the gradual restoration of traditional Judean life in their ancient capital of Jerusalem. Ironically, once granted their freedom by Cyrus, most Hebrews decided to remain in Babylon and continue enjoying the benefits of living in the world's most cosmopolitan city. It was in Babylon that the Hebrews would develop their new Hebraic script, centralize the role of the Torah, and begin canonization of the Bible, and where scribes and sages would first begin to claim a prominent leadership role in Hebrew society. For centuries after their exile had ended, Babylon, not Jerusalem, would continue to host the largest Judean population in the Near East. But it wasn't only by staying put that the Hebrews showed their trust in Cyrus. The Persians would also hold the distinction of being the only empire against which the Hebrews would never rebel. For the Babylonians, who'd seen countless great kings and empires come and go over the centuries, the Persians were just the latest in a very long line. But they were also, unquestionably, a big step up from the Neo-Babylonian successors of Nebuchadnezzar II. And it's probably with some justification that Cyrus recorded that all the inhabitants of Babylon, as well as of the entire country of Sumer and Akkad, princes and governors, bowed to Cyrus and kissed his feet, jubilant that he had received the kingship. For those keeping track, that's three Near Eastern empires in 11 years. Cyrus, you're making this all look way too easy. Next episode, we'll take a look at the final years of Cyrus the Great and discuss the nature of the Achaemenid Persian Empire over which he ruled. And, as promised, we'll also return to Italy to cover the many reforms of Servius Tullius and watch the ascension of the final Etruscan king, the notorious Tarquin the Proud, to the throne of Rome. All this next time on The Ancient World.